We want to welcome you today. We're so glad that you're here at Hope Fellowship. Those of you that are joining us on campus and those of you that are joining us through church at home, I want to say to you, happy Mother's Day to you. Happy Mother's Day. And we are glad that we are, you're here to celebrate women with us this morning. So could you turn to someone around you and say happy Mother's Day to them? And I know that's awkward if you're sitting next to a man, right? It's kind of odd. Yes. But mate, we're here to celebrate women together. And, and that is uh, super important. It is. Yes. Um, in picking out a card for my wife, you know, uh, I don't know if you're the kind of person when you go to the card department and, and you look and all of a sudden your head spins because there's so many choices, right? And what applies, you want something that uh, truly applies to their life and, and those kinds of things. And so you look at the serious ones, right? And you, you look at those and, and then you look at the, the ones that are funny kind of deal. And then there's some generic ones that you find in the card section and so you find yourself standing in the store for 30 or 45 minutes, and it's kind of funny on Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, it's just a whole line of men, right? We're all there, and you're kind of like pushing each other to get in to look for it, and you're thinking, oh, the good ones are already gone. And then when you find a good one, there's no envelope for it to go in, right? So you got to find the, the odd envelope somewhere that doesn't match the color, and so I picked out one this year, and it's in my office, and I will give it to my wife a little later on. But I loved it because it's kind of a funny one. And the front of it says this. It says, stuff you ask mom. And I thought it was kind of interesting. Stuff you ask mom. And so here's the stuff. What's for dinner? What time is it? How come? I always, you know, I don't know if you ever asked your mom, how come? Why not? When is it my turn? Can I have more? Where is it? Can I watch TV? Will you read to me? Can I play with this? Do you have to, do I have to go to bed? And then the other line is stuff you ask dad. And the one question is, where's mom? Right? Isn't that right? Yes. Yes. Where's mom? And it's so true, right? Yeah. Where's mom? Because we know who's going to make all the decisions here in this house, right? And that is true. So we want to celebrate all the women in the house today, whether you are a mom or not, this is a great day that is set aside on our calendar to celebrate you in a culture where it's somewhat risky, somewhat now, because what if we allow culture to dictate, it's risky for us to have conversations about gender and the other sex, because having this conversation as a man can somehow, by some, seem to be somewhat misogynistic and for, you know, probably five years ago, you wouldn't even known what that word was, or I, I wouldn't have known what it was. I would have thought that it's a thing where you go to someone and you get a back rub. That's what I thought it was, right? That's kind of what, I, but I, we realize what that is now. But I, I tell you what, the Bible has a lot to say about strong women. Understand that, it really does. It has a great deal to say about the role of men and women in our culture and in our families. It has a great deal to to bring to point about women in leadership and great faith. And, and so I set out on this search through Scripture to find a strong woman to talk to you about. Well, there were so many to choose from. There really was. And, and I could have talked from, about Hannah, and I could have talked about Mary, and I, and, and I could have talked about just all types of Old Testament characters that we could have gone to. But this search led me to the book of Joshua. It led me to the book of Joshua, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And that's where we're going to start today, Joshua chapter 1. Because I've titled this, and it's kind of odd, and I know this, uh, according to Rahab the prostitute. Is what I, you say, Mark, that is a terrible title for Mother's Day, isn't it, right? Yes, it, it, it really is. And it's on the top of your notes, and you can like race through it if you want. But it's a really powerful story about a very resourceful 
an extremely powerful woman who finds herself in the very clutches of the reality of life. I wanted to find someone real for you today, right? I wanted to find that, so I found myself here in the book of Joshua. And so all the guys just hang on because I found a subject for that of Father's Day. And I want to talk about, well, it's simply Jacob the liar is what I want to talk about for Father's Day. So today, Rahab the prostitute, Father's Day, Jacob the liar. Hey, it's going to be a great time together. So Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim. And I know you've been waiting for me to pronounce that word, haven't you? Yes. It's like, how is he going to say that? Shittim, as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, who lodged there. Now, my question is, when you begin to read through the Bible, we find that Rahab is uh, referenced to, in a lot of places, Old Testament, New Testament, And what we find is that so many times when she is referenced, that she is referenced by that of her sin. She is called Rahab the prostitute. And I wondered, as I read through Scripture, why does God continually remind us of that sin within her life? You know, because you find it in James and Hebrews and Joshua and other places. Because no one else in the Bible, when I find men, they're not referred to like that. They're really not. Yes, no one, you know, I don't find where it says Moses the murderer or or that of Paul the hatchet man or Abraham the liar or Adam the spineless or Peter the hothead, but it's always Rahab the prostitute. And I want, why? There has to be a reason why that scripture continually refers to her in that way. And I'm going to answer that in a few moments, but yet I want to build a little background for you today because this is such a powerful narrative. And when I begin to think about her and that title that is associated with her, that what I begin to think about is no young girl grows up with this dream of being a prostitute. They, they don't. That's not what you grow up or, or decide that, you know, at some point in life, I want to grow up to be this person. That's not what you do. And I think At times, we dismiss this story, and maybe you as women dismiss this story, because you're not in the same place that Rahab is. So you kind of dismiss it as this really doesn't apply. It's a great Old Testament story, but it really doesn't apply to me. No, because when I look at this story, what you realize is that no one chooses this kind of shame. No one chooses to live in this kind of guilt. That's not in, in my opinion, a choice. In fact, when I read this text, as we read together in a moment, she hangs a scarlet cord outside her door every day so that everyone knows what she does. Her sin is extremely visible to all of her neighbors, to everyone that knows her, to her family, if they were to ever walk into her home, that it's extremely visible to everyone. And so what I realize is that, no, it's not that at all, that she's probably a victim of many years of abuse is what she she is. She's made bad decisions, but who hasn't in this room made some kind of bad decision within their life? The terrible things have happened to her in order for her to find herself in this state. It is men have misused her over the years and never valued her within her life. And so she feels a lot of guilt. She feels a great deal of shame for where she is living and how she is simply making a life and surviving. But she has to survive in all of this. I'm not justifying her her simply her sin, but what I'm saying to you is that this is a real story. And God makes it so real for you and I. 
is what he does. He makes it so powerfully real. When you read the story as we read together, there's this longing in her heart to be free from all of this and to be free from this wicked city of Jericho. It says that. But she has to survive and care for her family around her. But all of a sudden, she gets this wind of hope. All of a sudden, she hears of the conquest of the armies of Israel. She hears of the parting of the Red Sea. She hears of their God being the one and true God. And when she hears that, there's this moment of hope within her life and so what I realize is that she sees that there is, there is this moment that maybe she could be free from this kind of lifestyle. And when I read this, it excites me because what I realize is that God sends help. God sends help. Even in a moment of judgment in Jericho, that God sends help to one family who is simply provided by, by this Rahab the prostitute. God sends help. Can I tell you, as we start this study together this morning, none of us are beyond the help of God. None of us in this room are out of the reach of God today. Not one of you in this life, no matter what you've done or where you go, what kind of decisions you've made, none of us beyond the reach of God. But Mark, I still can't connect to this. Well, let me tell you this, maybe helps you connect a little better. What if I told you that Rahab, the prostitute, was a member of your family? Now, Mark, you've gone too far, right? Yes, that that would not fly on a Mother's Day card, would it? No, no, no one is going to stand at the rack and choose that one to give to everybody. It's not going to happen. But if I told you she was a member of your family, and my understanding of you and I as being brothers and sisters in Christ is that we're a collective body and we're a family. And so that we have one father and our father is God. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, that is correct. That God is our Father, that we are a collective family. If you read the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, here is what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zamar by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Oh, I love that, right? Isn't it? And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. So here's Rahab. Who is she? Oh, she is the mom of Boaz. Boaz is that of the bow of who? Of that of Ruth. Remember this amazing love story that you find in the book of Ruth. It wouldn't be there without Rahab. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So here's what I say to you this morning. There goes your idea of your squeaky clean little family, right? Isn't that right? Yes. So now you have to go home and you have to kind of scrape off the back of your minivan, your stick family. You have to scrape it off or you're going to have to find a Rahab and put her right in the middle of it. Isn't that right? Yes, because we are part of her family and she is part of ours. So that connects us. Why? Because Jesus is the greatest marker of our life. It is. So reading that, Matthew changes everything about this story. He really does for you and I. Because he makes it so real for us today. He makes this character amazingly real for us. That, that Rahab is not some social media popularity type individual. 
who is always posting pictures of themselves, but they use an app to remove all the blemishes. That's not Rachel at all. That's not her. She never disguises the pain of her life. It's never hidden by fluffy posts of bliss. This is raw humanity is what this is. Brokenness, real life. There's a cord that hangs outside of her door every day that tells all of her neighbors and everyone that passes by who she is and what she does and the brokenness of her own life. And you can't get more real than Rahab. You can't. And that's why I want to talk about her for a few moments with you. So it's verse 2. We start in a narrative together. And it was told to the king of um, Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, and I think it's always funny because I stopped there every time I read this and think, how does the king of Jericho know Rahab? It's an interesting thought, right? Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for you have come to search, or they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and she had hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I do not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. This is faith. This is what faith looks like, according to Rahab for you and I this morning. It is. That here you have this sinful woman. I'm not justifying that at all. But also you have this powerful, strong, resourceful survivor is what you have in the life of Rahab. But that's not enough. That's not enough for her. She has to take a step. A step that is going to... It could very likely cost her 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 life. It could cost her the life of her entire family. It could be absolutely the last decision she ever makes in life if these men are discovered on her rooftop. But something has to change in her life. She can't continue living like she has been living. She's keenly aware of their God. She establishes her awareness of the power of the God of Israel. But she has to do something. She has to do something. And when I begin to read through the Bible, what I realize is the Bible is true, but the Bible is not always obvious as what it says to us. And when I read through Scripture, I find so many points of tension. These moments of tension within our lives. Moments that, well, you and I have talked about for for years together. The biggest one is this, that God is sovereign, but man has a responsibility. That God is sovereign, but man has a responsibility. That God orchestrates all of life. That all of life is lived through God's hands. Yes, we believe that without any reservation there. But yet also that you and I have a responsibility and how we respond. And it seems that there is a great tension that is caused just by those two statements. That God is sovereign, but yet I have a responsibility in life. So it brings me to a question. Well, then is God sovereign or do I have a responsibility? Is God sovereign or I have a responsibility? Then I begin to read more. And I realize that the Bible says that you and I are to be content in life. That we're to be content 
in the way that God has created us and the things that God has given us that we find ourselves settled in that. But then I also find scripture that says we're to press toward the prize, that we're to simply discover our God-given potential. So I had another question. Are we to be content or are we to be ambitious in life? It's a thought. It really is. And then I begin to think more. Then the Bible says that we're to be disciplined about things. So that means that I'm going to do things in life that may cause me pain. But what I realize is that the reward of those things that I do through a disciplined life may come later in life. But then the scripture also tells me that I am to delight in the goodness of God. So am I to be disciplined or am I to delight in the Lord? And all those things seem to be mutually exclusive. And I say all those things to make a point to you this morning. That God puts those things together for a reason. That the Bible says that I'm saved by grace through faith, not by my works. Titus chapter 3 says it's, I'm not, it's not by my righteousness, but by God's righteousness. He says all those things. And all of a sudden there's this tension. And I find this tension in the life of Rahab all of a sudden. What do you mean? That she acknowledges the power of God. She acknowledges in a moment the things that their God has done. And, and how he has exhibited this great power over all of the creative order. But yet, there is also a role for her to play here. There is something for her to do. She hides the spies. And so we get into this thought about this, about our works and about faith. And it's not teaching us that our faith is a result of our works in God. No, that's not it at all. What I realize is this, that my works and the things that I do are simply a result of my faith in God is what it is. So what I'm saying to you is this. It's not enough just to believe. And I don't know, you know, I I don't know where you are, women, men in the room, and where you are in life and what's going on within your life. But maybe you find yourself in a situation like Rahab. Maybe you find yourself in a situation where something needs to change within you or something needs to change around you. And so you're believing God. You know that God opened the Red Sea. You know that God has simply conquered nations. You know that God can do anything just at simply his word. You know that. And we understand because he is sovereign. But what is your responsibility? And I know that there are times in our lives in that we believe, yes. But there are times in our life when you and I have to move. We have to do something. This is Rahab. This is the story of Rahab. James chapter 2 verse 14. Let me read these texts to you. And I know I'm reading a lot of texts. So I'm going to really read this kind of fast to you this morning. But I want you to get really a good handle on this. He says in James chapter 2 verse 14. What good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith. And he does not have works. What good is that? It's not that we're saved by our works, but by our faith. And our works are a result of our faith. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? He said, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, if you have faith... And I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and she sent them out by another way. And if you struggle with this text, you're in good company. You can read church history. Martin Luther, the reformer, struggled with this text many times. He avoided many times of preaching out of the book of James chapter 2 simply for these verses alone. But when I read this word justify, what I realize is this, that in no way is James saying to you, that our life is justified because of the things that we do in life. That's not what he was saying, because that would be making God's love for us a result of our work for him, and that is absolutely untrue, and it's impossible for you and I to ever accomplish that kind of task within our life. But what he's saying to you and I this morning is this. He's saying that this is not about making her faith true. This is about simply proving that her faith is true. That her works is not the substance of her faith, but her works is the evidence of her faith. That we're made right by God through our faith. Understand that. But we prove that we are in that right place with God, covered by Jesus' righteousness, by the works that you and I do. It's not enough just to believe that at some point in your life you have to move. That's what I want to say to you this morning. And I begin to think about this in Rahab and how that applies to all of us in this room, male and female alike. That you have to become an element of change in your life. Understand that. Did you have to step up and address the tough issues of your life today? You, you have to do that. Yes, life is unfair. I understand that. It is absolutely unfair. It is. Maybe you've been dealt a real bad hand in life. You have. You've made some bad decisions. We've all made bad decisions in this room that we have. You've been victimized. We've been mistreated. You've been disenfranchised. Your marriage is not perfect. Your kids have gone nuts on you and you just don't know what to do with all of them right now, right? Your life is not how you have envisioned that it would ever become at this point. Listen, and you can sit there and you can allow yourself to be continually victimized by your past and your present or you can stand up with God and do something. You can make a change. Even if that change is small within your life, that you can make a change. You can. Understand that if if Rachel can climb out of the car and start to give birth on the side of the road, you are strong women in this room that you can make those changes with the help of God in your life. It's one thing for you just to believe that God can. But it's another thing for you to step out in faith and put that faith in action in within your life. Understand that God met Oh, this is such a powerful story that God meets meets Rahab exactly where she is in this story. But God does not leave her there. Understand that. That God does not leave her in that situation. 
Let me read more of the story. I have to read this to you, okay? And, and it's so good. It says in verse 8, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and, and that all the inhabitants of the, of the land melt away before you. And when I read that, I went back to reference, and what I realized, these guys have never told her why they are there. They've never told her that. She doesn't know their plan. But God is speaking to Rahab, is what he's doing. For we have heard now the Lord has had dried up the water of the Red Sea before you had come out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan of Sion and Og, uh, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left with any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that I have dealt kindly with you, that you will deal kindly with my father's house. And I thought again, this says something about Rahab, that she's a prostitute, most likely ostracized by her community and her family, yet she's pleading for the safety of her father's house. And he says, and give me a sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. It's what happens in my life when my theology drops from my head to my heart. That's what happens. <laughs> That's it. That's that moment when my theology becomes reality to me, when my experience with God is no longer ethereal, but my experience with God becomes reality. That moment of faith when we take that step. It is. Hey, you, you wonder, did somebody leave a ladder up here and forgot to take it off after repair? No, this is mine. My trusty ladder of 11 years. I've had this. I have decorated Christmas trees. I have painted with this thing. I have changed light bulbs at home. I, I trust this ladder. I have great faith in it that I have stood on the very top of it with nothing else around me, you know, and, and I have balanced myself and I probably will not try that here, okay? I will not. But yet, I have done that. But for me to stand here and say to you today, that I have so much faith in this ladder because I've known this thing for 11 years. I have so much confidence in this ladder that I know it's going to hold me. Does that really establish my faith? Does that really mean that I have faith? Because where is my faith established? Is my faith established in me just proclaiming the greatness of it and the dependability of it and the faithfulness of that thing? Or does my faith come at this point when I take this ladder and I simply begin to stand on this ladder and I trust it? Is that where my faith comes? <laughs> is that where it is? Does my faith come when I begin to walk and I believe that and I know that this thing will hold me no matter what? Because I want to tell you that I think that sometimes we talk about God's faithfulness. We talk about God's, God's honoring, you know, his word and his promises. But I believe that we have to simply stand. We have to take that step. This is where our faith is established this morning when we do something. We do something. And for some of you in this room, this is that moment. 
Because you have, you can list all the reasons why, and Rahab could have listed all the reasons why she wouldn't trust these men. She could have listed all the reasons why she wouldn't even trusted God. Every man in her life has simply been about using her. But she takes this step in this moment of faith within her life, and she moves. You cannot continue to live your life in neutral. Understand that. You cannot. You have to make this move with God. Understand that. Look at verse 15. Here's what he says. He said, Then she let down her rope through the window from her house, was built on the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. So convenient for them, wasn't it? And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days, and the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards, you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, they say, when we come into the land, you will tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and and you shall gather into your house, your father, your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. And I read this and they make this covenant with her. And I read this and I thought this is so powerful because here's what she's saying to you and I. As I bring this to a close this morning, And tile this together for us. She's saying it's God who writes the next chapter in our lives, according to Rahab. It's God who does that. Our question that we started with, that why is she so many times referred to as Rahab the prostitute throughout Scripture? And what I realize is this, it's it's a reference of her brokenness. It's a reference of that of her imperfection. But it's a reference of her past is what that is. It's saying that that's who Rahab was, but Rahab is no, that Rahab is no more. That God has changed her. That God has done a powerful work in her life. The book of Matthew chapter 1 simply says that. And I think it's so powerful that they, they say to her, tie that scarlet cord in your window. The window was this point that when the army of Israel comes, that they would look for that window in the wall and they would see that scarlet cord tied in the window and they would spare her and they would spare her family. It's a powerful moment of redemption because what she does is this, that she hangs, she hangs the sign of her sin at the very point of her redemption. It's a powerful thought that she does with that scarlet cord. And, and, it, and it says here that it's God's intention to us. It's God's heart toward you and I. It's God's moment within our life to redeem us, to save us. It says in chapter 6 and verse 25, it says this, but Rahab the prostitute and her family's household and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. It's God who writes the next chapter. Understand that. Yes, I climb the ladder, but it's God who holds me. It is God who brings the support to that. It is God who brings the foundation in my life. But what I realize, it is God who writes the next, next chapter of our lives. So, Mark, what do I do? You know, where do I go from here? What do, what do I do with all this information? I think there's two things I'll leave you with this morning. Two thoughts that that I want to share with you. And the first is, I think it starts with surrender. That this journey for us, in this moment of moving within our lives, has to start with a moment of surrender. It starts with the question of, how do you see God in your life? 
Because I think we go through life sometimes and, and we see God as this, as this individual who, who comforts us when we're, when we're hurting. And, and we see God as this individual, like, he's like a co-pilot for us. He picks up the pieces when we don't get it right sometimes. We sort of see him in all those areas of our life as an influencer and a guide in our life. We see him as at some point when we die that he's going to guide us to a better place. We see him as that. But I wonder sometimes if that's enough. And I gave that a lot of thought this week. Is that enough? Because what I realize, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't take out that first word, Lord. I can't do that. Maybe as much as I'd want to sometimes. And I just want to use the Jesus Christ part of this relationship. That is, he is my Savior, Redeemer, that I can't remove the Lord part. I can't choose to take part of him and sort of push the other aside. Someone told me years ago, I've never forgotten it. They told me that partial obedience in my life is still disobedience. So I can't pick and choose with God. And I can't pick and choose with the parts I like of him and the parts I don't. So I have to start with this word, Lord. It would be like me coming to your house this week and ringing the doorbell. And if you're like me, you have the ring doorbell. So you you look on your phone to see if you want to go to the door or not, right? Yes, yeah. You're hiding out somewhere in the house. Shades are down. Turn the TV down real low. Dog's barking. And you open the door and you invite Mark in, but you don't invite GasQ in, which is my last name. And I stand there confused because I can't separate Mark from GasQ. I just can't. They go together, right? And I think in this moment of surrender, we struggle with this thing of making him Lord. When I read this story with Rahab, I realized that that moment when she chose to hide those spies, she truly placed God before everything in her life. Even in the middle middle of her state, she placed God before everything. It was a powerful thought to me. C.S. Lewis says it like this. And you know me, I love quoting C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says to make Jesus Lord of your life is like living in a rickety old house that needs a lot of repairs. And he simply says it like this, that Jesus shows up as the reno guy. Jesus has the very best show on HGTV. I mean, there is none like it, right? Yes, yes. And he shows up at your house single-handed. He doesn't need a crew. And so he fixes the roof where it's leaking. He fixes the plumbing so it doesn't stop up anymore. He fixes the broken hinge on the door. And you're happy. But then all of a sudden Jesus says to you, Hey, let's tear down that wall. (laughs) I don't know if I want to go there, right? That's, That's pretty severe. Okay, I'll take a chance. Just this one thing, Jesus. One wall. 
And so he tears down that wall that you have despised for years. We have a wall in our house like that, don't we? <laughs> and and, and you, he tears it down, and you think, oh, this is going to be a mess. And all of a sudden, when he pulls off the covering of the wall, you see that there's this beautiful shiplap wood back there, the most beautiful wood that you've ever seen. You say, Mark, you've watched way too much HGV. I know, but hang on. This is, this is C.S. Lewis's story. And you're happy, right? He tears it all down, this beautiful wood wall. Oh, it's wonderful. He says to you, hey, let's tear up the carpet. I like my 1970s shag. Don't tear it up, you know, right? Yes, green is perfect. Yeah. And he begins to pull it back, and all of a sudden, unbeknownst to you, there's beautiful oak hardwoods under there. And you're happy. Yes. And then Jesus says to you, hey, let's tear down this half of your house. Whoa, wait a minute. That's pushing it. But you let him tear it down. And he builds this beautiful addition and this courtyard. Because in your mind, what you've always seen yourself being built into is this beautiful little country cottage. And what God is building is a palace because kings live in palaces. Because what he's doing within you and I is he's building a dwelling place for himself. That's making him Lord. That I give him this. And I give him that. And what I realize in my life, that making him Lord in my life, then that leads to this time of courage for me. To climb the ladder. It does. Because in my life, fear, fear has always equaled disobedience for me, right? That, uh, that God says, hide the spies. And I said, no, I can't do that, but I'm going to believe in you. But I find myself in that moment of disobedience because of the fear of my life. And when I look at this story, what I realize is that the spies end up in Rahab's house. What's the chance? Rahab's house is built on the wall where there's a window for the army of Israel to see when they come so they can spare her life. What's the chance? They find themselves in the house of a prostitute who has heard of their God. And she has begun to believe in him. What the chance, right? They find themselves not only there and someone who believes in their God, but they find themselves in the presence of a strong resilient survivor, a strong woman who says, I can't live the way I'm living anymore, so I am going to step out and I'm going to hide you at the risk of everything. Because none of this has anything to do with chance. None of it. But it has everything to do with God being present. And His presence is what always brings courage in our life. So for a moment of reflection, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Those here in campus, those that are joining us from church at home to pray, to cut out all the distractions around you. 
Father, in this moment, as we sit here, your children, member of your family, discovering this morning that we have distant relatives of great faith and courage. That we stand in the shadow of this powerful narrative today. And we find ourselves, Lord, with some of the edges of our lives not matching up with the edges of the narrative. And Father, we know that that's designed that way to always push us to you. And so, Lord, your kids are sitting here and you know their hearts and their minds. You know the struggles of men and women in this room. God, you know the feelings of being victimized. God, you know that there are in here those that have suffered being disenfranchised. There are those in this room that are facing need for great change within their life. But God, let that change happen within us first. Because God, truly, what you want to do within us is so much more important than what you want to do through us. So God, let that change begin within us. Let us see ourselves in the light of the way you see us and how you love us and care for us today. How you provided for us, Lord, even by giving us this great narrative. Father, I pray especially this morning for all the women in the room today. In a world that would attempt to dictate who they are and what they do and the way that they should look, that, God, they would stay focused upon you. And in those moments, God, when there needs to be change, that they will step up and not just proclaim their faith in you, but they would walk out their faith in you, that they would move in their life, they would do something And even when they don't know what to do, that they do the next thing that they know they need to do in life, God. And you write the chapter of their lives as they go. So, Father, by your Spirit, empower the women in this room in a greater way than ever before. Empower them to be elements of change, not only in their families, but in our community and in in our our nation, God, that empower them today, Lord. But let it be more than just saying that you're a powerful God, but let them walk in your power and do great works in your power, knowing that they're accepted completely by you. So, Father, thank you for speaking to us today from the book of Joshua and giving us this great example in the life of Rahab. We thank you, Lord, that as you recognized her moments of redemption and you used her there, you didn't leave her there. Truly, you're doing that in the lives of women this morning in this room. 
And we give you thanks in your name.